Now, I'm a big believer that when you come to church, you should get good news, not bad news. I think you get enough bad news during the week. And so I hate to be up here uh, telling you that it's time to start our back-to-school drive when some of you just got out of school. And I hear the students in the room groaning right now. And uh, I know it's early. I know it's only been two weeks. Uh, For some of you parents, I just want to encourage you, I know it's only been two weeks, okay? But I believe in you. You can do this. You've got more strength through Christ than you know you've got, and uh, it might be six more weeks or seven more weeks before your kids go back, but you can do this, all right? I believe in you. Uh, Hey, school just let out last week, right, for many of us, but sometimes it just be like that, and uh, we're trying to really help the kids at Noblesville Schools have a successful year next year, and I know you want that, and I want that, and to do that, we've got to get supplies in their hands uh, early enough to start school. School in Noblesville starts uh, the 1st of August, and um, they've asked for, the schools have asked for our supplies to be back July the 10th. And so out in the lobby today, as you leave, you'll see a table set up with backpacks. Ben will be out there. You can grab a backpack and a list, and as you're shopping for school supplies for your kids, or maybe you're just out doing grocery shopping or whatever, you can pick up the things on the list, put them in the backpack, bring them back here on or before July the 10th, and we will get them in the hands of Noblesville schools, uh, and they'll get them to the students who need them the most. So thanks, Genesis, for doing that. Uh, we appreciate you. It's one, one more thing I love about being part of a generous church uh, is that we help out the schools in this way for, for many years now. So thank you very much. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm the campus pastor here at Genesis, and we're continuing this weekend in our series called Summer of Love. And when I thought about where to start today, I wondered if, like, we, do we even know what love means? Would we even have the same definition of love? And so I did what any self-respecting 21st century person would do. I Googled it. And uh, if, here's what I found. If you put love is in Google, you know, they've got the automatic, the autofill that will fill it out. You get a lot of different things. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is a many splendored thing. Love is never having to say you're sorry. And my personal favorite, love is blind, seasons one and two. And, you know, the, the world has a lot to say about love, but much of the advice that we get about love is conflicting and confusing and maybe not even helpful. But the good news is the Bible also has a lot to say about love, about God's love for us, about how we're supposed to love one another, how we're supposed to love our spouse if we're married. Uh, how we're supposed to love our kids, how we're, as kids or as even as grown-ups, we're supposed to love our parents, how we should love our neighbor well, and then how we express our love for God. The Bible has things to say about all of those, and because it's God's inspired word, then we can know that it's trustworthy and true. And so this summer, we're taking eight weeks to talk about love and what the Bible has to say about love, to look at these biblical principles and see how they can help us love people better and become better disciples and better people. And so today I wanted to share with you one of my favorite verses, one of my favorite passages actually from Scripture. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, you can open them to Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some blue ones in the back of the room. Those are our gift to you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. We want you to be reading along with us this summer as we share. But before I share, I want to tell you a story. Many of you know uh, I am a dad. Uh, If you don't know that already, you can tell by my jokes. Uh, But I am a dad. My girl's uh, Grace is 20 years old. Audrey is 18. Uh, But when they were little we would play this game and this game was kind of like you know guess how much daddy loves you right you guys if you're a parent you've probably played this game before but we would uh i would say something like this to my kids when they were little i would say 
is there anything you can do to make daddy not love you? And they would say, no. And it was so cute. You know, when they're little, it's so cute that they, they know that. And uh, then they start coming up with things that they might be able to do to make daddy not love them. So they'd say something like, well, what if I flunked out of school? No, I'd still love you. I might be disappointed, but I'd still love you. Well, what if I spilled my drink at dinner? Nope. I mean, I might make you clean it up, but I'd still love you. And then they keep coming up with these progressively, like, more sinister scenarios until it got to, well, what if I pushed Audrey down the stairs or something like that? You know, no, I might get mad at you, but I'd still love you. But the point of it was for me is I wanted my kids to know that my love for them uh, was unconditional. As a good father, like, I loved them no matter what they did, right? And I wanted them to know that. I want them to take that lesson through life, that there is nothing they can do to make dad not love them. And that reminds me of the passage I want to share today. Uh, it's a verse, more like a pair of verses, and it is from the New Testament book of Romans. Now, Romans, we call it a book. It's actually a letter. It's a letter written by Paul, a man named Paul. The, we know him as the Apostle Paul. If you don't know Paul's story, Paul was a powerful Jew in the time of Jesus. He was a part of the Jewish ruling class. Uh, he had some authority in the area where he lived, and uh, he was actually a persecutor of early Christians. We see him in the book of Acts as Stephen who's uh, one of Jesus' disciples, is being stoned to death. Uh, the first time we see Paul, Paul is standing there holding the coats of the men who are throwing the rocks. So this is the kind of guy that Paul was. He was a Jew. He's an avid persecutor of Christians. And then one day he's on the way to Damascus to get permission to put some Christians in jail. And he's confronted by Jesus on the road in person. Now, the only problem was that Jesus had already died by then. So Jesus was dead. He had been raised from the dead. He had uh, ascended into heaven, and he meets Paul, a man named Saul, on this road, and he says, you're going to be the man who takes my word to the Gentiles or the non-Jews. And, and that's what Paul did. He changed his life. His life was changed forever. He became not a persecutor of Christians, but he became one of them. And in fact, one of the most avid ones. He became a, a huge uh, evangelist for Christ. He became uh, one of the most passionate and on-mission Christians. He became a prolific church planter. He planted many churches around the world, and he spent the rest of his life helping and teaching these churches, and he did it largely through a series of letters, and many of those we have captured in our New Testament. So as you read through the New Testament, you get the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you hit the book of Acts, and then you get uh, starting with Romans, Romans 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and you go on through until you get to 2nd Timothy. All of those are letters of Paul, uh, from Romans all the way to 2nd Timothy. So if you look at that, he wrote about two-thirds of our New Testament. And so you can see that uh, Paul was a very influential person in the church, and he wrote this book, this letter, to uh, Romans, to the church in Rome. Now, the church in Rome was a little unique in that it was one of the only churches that was made up of largely non-Jewish believers. A lot of the early churches had people who had been Jews, who converted, converted to Judaism because of the word of Jesus, but Rome had a lot of Gentile or non-Jewish believers in it. And so part of this letter, uh, the part that we now know as Romans chapter 8, is one of the most encouraging and comforting pieces of scripture, I think, in the whole entire Bible. And so we're going to take a look at what Paul writes to those who are in Christ. Romans 8, 38 is where I'm going to start. I'm going to start at the end and then go back to the beginning, and it's going to be a little confusing, but you can follow on the screens, or if you've got your Bible open, you'll be able to see it there. Paul writes this, he says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when I first read this passage as a new Christian, it blew me away to know that there's nothing that can separate me from God's love, that his love was so great, so powerful, so perfect that I couldn't do anything, the world couldn't do anything to separate me from God's love because I don't always feel worthy of love. But the more I read it and the more I studied, the more I realized that that's exactly the point, (laughs) that, that we're not worthy of God's love. But the unconditional love of God, that means that his love is given without conditions, right? Unconditional love is so strong and so powerful, so inseparable, if I could use that word that way, uh, not because of how great I am, but because of how great our God is. It's true with me and it's true with you too. You are unconditionally loved by God, not because of how awesome you are, although you're awesome, I think you're awesome, but because of how awesome our God is. And if you don't take anything else away from this morning here's what i want you to know there is nothing you can do to make god love you more and there is nothing you can do to make god love you less god's love you can never earn it it is given to you in fact it's not just this verse or this couplet of verses that speaks to this this point the whole chapter of romans 8 is basically an essay on god's love for us Um, this chapter maybe more than any other in the bible speaks to the benefits of being a christian It'd be one of the first chapters I recommend that people read uh, when they first come to Christ. If they come to know Jesus, they accept Jesus as their Savior. They say, yeah, I want Jesus to be my Lord. Go read Romans 8 because it's an incredible uh, treatise on God's love for us and the benefits of being a Christian, of being subject to his love. Now, I want to tell you before I dive in a little deeper that here at Genesis, we've done entire six-week series on Romans 8. And so in uh, the next 15 or 20 minutes, I won't be able to cover everything about Romans 8, but I do want to give you an overview of what it has to say about God's love for us. And so here's what I want to do. I want to go back to the beginning and start at Romans 8, 1, and you can follow along with me. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll muscle through this together. It's going to be great. Romans 8, 1 says this, uh, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, as you read this word, you'll notice the very first word is therefore. As you read this verse, the very first word is therefore. And I love uh, Pastor Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church out in California. He always said, uh, if you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's there for. And so we're going to go backwards a little bit and see what it's there for. If you go back to chapter 7, you'll notice that Paul is ranting about his own personal sin. He says, I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. And the things I hate, I do. Now, you don't have to raise your hand, but if you can relate to that that makes you human okay i mean i read that and i'm like i've never understood a person more in my life than when paul says that the things i want to do i don't do the things i hate i do this is paul that's writing that he and then he goes on to say this he says what a wretched man i am who will rescue me from death paul who was when when he was confronted with Jesus on the road to Damascus completely changed his life around and became one of the biggest evangelists for Christ in history. Paul, who went on to spend years in a Roman prison because of his faith, Paul says, I'm a wretched man. 
And I got to tell you, as I read that, if Paul is a wretched man, what chance do I have, right? What, what chance do we have? But then he asks this question, if Paul, is de- if Paul is deserving of death, how much more do I deserve death? But then look at this. He asks this question. He says, who will rescue me from death? And then he goes on to answer his own question. And here's what he says in Romans 7.25. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's the basis. That's the foundation for all of Romans chapter 8. Is that we are wretched men and women deserving of death. But we were delivered from death by God through Jesus Christ. And that's the foundation of all of Romans 8. So when he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he's reminding us that that's why, that Christ has delivered us from condemnation. And uh, Michael Van Lanningham, who's a Bible commentator from Moody Seminary, says that condemnation includes both the idea of rendering a verdict of guilt and the punishment that follows. So just imagine that, that you're on trial for something you've done and you are spared from a guilty verdict and the punishment. That's what Paul is saying. In Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation. And as you read on, what you'll see is this idea of no condemnation refers especially to freedom, our freedom from the crippling power of sin in our lives. That for many of us, there was a time when sin took up a lot of space in our lives. It was something that we looked forward to. It was something that we indulged in often. And then we came to know Jesus and the power of his forgiveness. And again, for many of us, we were freed from that power of sin. I mean, just, just look at some of the phrases that Paul uses as he talks about this, as we go through Romans 8. Romans 8, 3, he says this, For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And then he goes on, Romans 8, 5, he said, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. He's drawing this contrast, right? He's drawing this contrast between living by the flesh and living by the spirit. And there's so much here that we don't have time to talk about all of it. I just want to encourage you to read all of Romans chapter 8 this week. You know, we, we spent the first half of the year, first part of the year going through uh, this series called Grow. We've been reading through John together. If you've been following along with us, you know we have a reading plan. You don't have a reading plan for this summer. I've just gave you one, Romans chapter 8, this week, go read all of it, because I hope it'll be really, really encouraging to you, but there's this contrast between those who live by the Spirit and those who don't, what Paul calls living by the flesh. Now, to understand what Paul means when he says living by the Spirit, it helps to understand that all of us who are in Christ, those of us who have uh, decided to follow Jesus with our lives, have God's Holy Spirit living inside of us. And he's there to comfort us, to guide us, to lead us, and to advocate for us. Uh, and, but Paul says that some of us live by the Spirit or follow the Spirit's leading, and some of us uh, still live by the flesh. But he reminds us that the Spirit was given to us by God out of love. The Holy Spirit is a gift in our life uh, because of God's grace and mercy. And so then he goes on and he says this and verse 9. He says, you, however, and he's talking to Christians. Remember, he's writing this letter to the church. He says, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Now, what he's saying here is that because we are made of sinful flesh that our bodies are going to die 
But for those who are in Christ, we've got this promise of eternal life. This is just one more place the Bible promises that. And he says, and if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. You ever thought about that? That the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. If that spirit is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And that, that because of that Holy Spirit living in us, Paul is reminding us, because of God's grace in that gift, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In fact, if you want to take notes today, we're actually going to see three signs in this chapter of God's inseparable love for us. Three signs, and the first one is this, that God's love for us has no condemnation. Now, I, I want to remind you, I want to warn you, in fact, that no condemnation does not mean that we won't be tested. You know, it doesn't mean that we won't face difficult times or, or trials or tough decisions. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Paul wants to warn us, his readers, that, that as followers of Jesus, we will face trying situations. He goes on to remind us that we do still live in a broken world. We are still subject to the whims of nature. He talks about creation is groaning. He's talking about the, the, the whims of nature, the whims of this world, the worldly consequences of sin. That's something to remind ourselves of, too, that even though our sin, there's no condemnation in, for those of us who are in Christ for our sin, there are worldly consequences for our sin. You know, we've all been exposed to that, right? We've suffer the consequences here on earth of our sin or even of somebody else's sin, right? Somebody else does something and we have to live with the consequences of that. But Paul's going to remind us to continue to take the long view, that there's something coming. For those of us who are in Christ, there's something coming so we can live today's life with tomorrow in mind. Romans 8, 18, he says that I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, I find this verse to be a great comfort to me in some really difficult times in my life. That, and maybe you will too. Paul's effectively saying, I know that times are bad. But because you live by the Spirit, you have this promise of heaven down the road. And, and someday you'll look back on this and laugh. It's not exactly what he's saying. But for those who aren't in Christ, who live by the flesh, they don't have that promise. That the difficult times you're suffering now, that there's no promise of redemption. There's no hope in the future if you don't have the love of Christ in you, if you're not living by the Spirit, that, that, that you will suffer the consequences of sin, both now and in the future. But for you, if you're a Christian, you can rejoice that better days are coming. Now, I want you to remember that Paul's not making light of your situation. If you're in a tough time now, if you're dealing with the consequences maybe of sin or of someone else's sin, if you're dealing with a difficult situation in your life, whether it's a relationship or a health problem or a divorce, he's not saying like the divorce doesn't matter or the pain isn't real or that that relationship problem is just a blip he's not even saying that god doesn't care about that or isn't listening to your prayers in fact it's quite the contrary he he goes on to remind us that if we're in a difficult spot and we're praying that that the holy spirit is praying along with us he's advocating for us romans eight twenty six says this in the same way the spirit helps us in our weakness we do not know what we ought to pray for. How many of you have ever been in that situation right there? Where you, you, you in a difficult time, and you want to pray, and you're like, your prayer comes out like this. God, I, I don't even know. It says, when we don't know what to pray for, the Spirit himself intercedes for us 
through wordless groans. And so often, friends, that is the exact type of prayer I need. Because I'm in that situation, I'm in that spot, I'm praying for a friend, I'm praying for a family member, I'm praying for myself, and I'm like, God, I, I don't have anything. But his spirit does. I want you to know if you're in a difficult season right now, the Holy Spirit joins you in your prayers. Just keep praying. Go to God. His love for you never fails. His, his Holy Spirit is interceding for you with wordless groans, and that's what it means to have an advocate in God's Holy Spirit. Paul then goes on to tell us that God can actually use these bad situations, these difficult times uh, for our own good. Romans 8, 28 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. He says this, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, a couple things about this verse. He says God can use all things. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. In all things, in good things, and in neutral things, and in bad things. And then it goes on to say he can use it for the good of those who love him. Now, so many times when we are in a difficult situation in our life, some well-meaning person might have told us, hey, this could be used for God's glory, and that's good, and that's important, and it's true. But don't you ever think, well, what about me? Like, why would God use my difficult time for his glory? Does that seem mean to you? Does that seem cruel? But this actually says that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. If you are someone who loves God, that the difficult times in your life will be used for your good. Will they be used for God's glory? Yes, absolutely. Will they be used for your good? Well, according to Romans 8, 28, they will be used for your good as well. And how confident is Paul in this? He says, and we know <laughs> that in all things. So it's not like, I, I guess God can use all things. I think, I propose, I suggest, I believe. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And now Paul's going to go on to give one more reason that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He reminds us that we have been adopted as sons and daughters, that we are a part of God's family. We who have chosen Christ are given all the rights of full-born children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and because of this, there is no condemnation. So, first part, God's love for us has no condemnation. Second thing we're going to see is God's love has no accusation. In light of all that God has done for us, sacrificing his own son, forgiving our sins, uh, putting us in a right relationship with God, giving us his spirit, uh, making us part of his own family, Paul is going to tell us we don't need to fear accusation from anyone or anything. Look at Romans 8.31. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Really powerful statement here, and it's not meant to be an if-then kind of like uh, conditional statement. Like, if, if God is for us, you know, if you can get behind the idea that God is for us, then you'll believe this. No, what he's saying is, hey, look at all the stuff in the past 30 verses. I just told you that God has done for you. Since that is true, who can be against us? You know, I, I, I'm thinking about an accuser here, right? There's an accuser. Um, uh, Romans 8.33 says this, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
it is God who justifies. I mean, think of it this way. Since we have an advocate in the Holy Spirit who's interceding on our behalf, we don't need to fear this accuser. You, you do have an accuser. The Bible tells us that you have an enemy in Satan. Uh, in Revelation 12, he's described as the accuser of the brethren. And that he would be the kind of being that every time you sin or mess up or fall short, he's right there in your ear saying, see, you always do this. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. What makes you think that you deserve God's love? He's not for you. He's not standing with you. Not even Jesus can save you. Those are the kinds of things the accuser says to you. But I've got to promise you, friends, you are not the only one that's so bad that Jesus can't save you. Like, you are not the one person in all of humanity that, like, well, I guess I've messed up too much. Jesus came to save everybody else on earth, but he can't save me. No, you're not that bad. You may be bad. You ain't that bad. There is no accusation in God's love. And finally, here's the third thing I want you to see. There's God's love for us has no condemnation. There's no accusation. And finally, the third one is this. There is no separation. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger of sword? I mean, here he says, who? Like, can the accuser separate us from the love of Christ? No. Now, hopefully you'll notice as we go on through these last verses of chapter 8 that this is a rhetorical question by Paul. Right? This is uh, not something he's expecting that we can answer. There's not an answer. Who can separate us like you can think of someone? Uh, instead, Paul says, who can, who can separate us from God's love? Can trouble? Can hardship? Can persecution? He's going to go on and list a whole litany of things that can separate us from other people's love. In fact, no matter how much you love your spouse or your kids or your parents, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your dog, like, your, your love is conditional. There, there's conditional conditions on your love. Your love is imperfect because you are imperfect. You need to know I am imperfect. I mean, how many of you have ever been rejected by someone? You ever gone through a, a breakup, maybe a bad breakup, one that didn't end very well? like a painful one, especially one you didn't see coming, that you were rejected by someone. It's a long time in my past now because I've been married almost 30 years, but a long time ago I had a girlfriend dump me because I was too clingy. Right, that's what she said, you're too clingy. Like I, was, I mean, we've been dating for a few months. I was asking about our future. I didn't think that was clingy. She thought I was too clingy. Hey, this kind of thing's happened to me a lot. I mean, not the breakup part, although, yeah, okay, that too. But like, has anybody ever said you're too something? Like, like I had a boss once that told me I was too goofy. I had another boss that told me I was too invested in my family and not invested enough in my work. And no, you don't know either of those bosses, I promise you. Uh, my dad once told me I was too quick-witted for my own good. What he actually said was, your mouth's going to get you in trouble someday. <laughs> Maybe you've been called too smart or too dumb or too handsome or too pretty or too funny or too serious or too involved or too standoffish or too tall or too short or too chubby or too bald or too skinny or too blonde or too hairy. Look, here's the point. You will always be too something for someone, but you are perfect for God. Like, his love for you is complete. It lacks nothing. It's unbreakable. In fact, take a look at the last, this list that Paul uses again in these last couple of verses in verse 38 and 39. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons, 
neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus. And I love that Paul ends this list with this phrase, nor anything else in all creation. And if you grew up in church, you may have heard it said, nor any created thing. In other words, he says, hey, just in case I've left something off the list, just in case you ever doubt, just in case you wonder if maybe there is something that can separate us from God's love, he says, no, I've covered it. There's no, no thing in all of creation. There's no created thing. I've covered it. There's nothing, 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 nothing in all of creation. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I love, again, how Michael Van Lanningham, the Moody scholar, says it. He says this, It is inconceivable that a true believer, who at times might not be able to keep his own shoe tied or balance his checkbook, could undo the eternal purposes of God that include his foreknowledge and their glorification. The believer is not nearly that powerful, nor the Spirit and the Savior so incompetent. And remember, it's not because of your greatness that this is true, but because of God's greatness. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any more. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Let's pray together. Father God, I am so thankful for that truth that there is nothing in all of creation, no created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I'm just so encouraged even this morning by that promise, Lord, that you sent Christ for us, that, that you looked at us and decided that we were so worthy of saving that you would send your one and only son who was without sin, that you would make him into sin to go to the cross for us, that you would hang him on a cross so he could take the punishment that we deserve. God, I'm thankful that you used your Holy Spirit to raise him from the dead and that that spirit now lives inside of us who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I'm thankful for this promise that you are praying along with us even when we don't know what to pray, that your spirit intercedes with wordless groans. God, there are times in my life where I've just needed those wordless groans so much. Remind us as we leave this place today, as we go, that there is nothing that we can do to make you love us less. And there's nothing you can, we can do to make you love us more. We're thankful for that truth this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name.